This morning, our text is going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, we're gonna be looking at verses one through seven. Exodus 17, verses one through seven. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Pretty serious accusations being lobbed here at God and stuck and afraid is where little Mason found himself uh, down in Titusville, Florida. Uh, so I'm sure if you've been on the internet for any amount of time, you've seen the phrase Florida man pop up and we start him young here in Florida. Mason's little eight-year-old going to lunch with his family, and like most kids, uh, they tend to wander off from the table. Well, uh, what Mason saw as he entered into the restaurant was that giant machine that you put money in, and it's got the little claw hand that goes down and grabs the toys, like in Toy Story, you know what I'm talking about? He sees that, he sees this machine full of these stuffed animals, and he realizes that he's without all these stuffed animals and he has to have them. So seeking the perfect opportunity, like most young children, he escapes from his family as they're sitting there eating, and he goes off and he comes to the machine and he finds that he doesn't have any money to operate the levers. So what does Mason do? Seeing a problem, he forges his own path, and he scales the side of the machine like a free solo climber, throws off the top of the machine, and drops down into the claw grabber machine, and he's there with his bounty and his harvest. He's so excited. He's got exactly what he wanted. But lo and behold, it's not soon after that he looks up. He realizes he's stuck in a glass case of emotion and he has no way to get out of this grabber arm machine, and he starts to look around, and all these dolls and these toys, they can't satisfy, they can't free him. And he's stuck there wondering, how in the world am I gonna get myself out of this predicament? He needed someone else to come in and save him, and thank the Lord, there was a couple of firefighters who were off duty there that were able to disassemble the machine and pull frightened Mason out of this machine. And this is just like Israel in our text. Israel thought that they could find happiness and peace and joy and satisfaction away from their heavenly father. They thought that goodness came somewhere else than God 
and they wanted to strike out on their own so bad, but unlike Mason's parents, who were unaware of their wanderings, God is ever-present in the life of Israel, and he refuses to let them go. And God's mercy for Israel, he refuses to give them over to themselves, and he brings them back in, and he keeps them close. You would think after time and time again of this experience that Israel would be like, man, God is such a good, loving, wonderful, and caring God, but not so with Israel. They get angry at God. They lash out at God. They rage at God. And we learn in our text that they bring a lawsuit against God and put him on trial. This is getting terrible here. What does this trial reveal to us? This trial reveals to us two things. It reveals the absolute selfishness of humanity, but it also reveals to us the selflessness of God selflessness of God. So we see the selfishness of humanity right off the bat in verses one and two. As Israel was traveling through the desert, they were thirsty. They they needed their, their thirst to be quenched, and God brings them very purposefully to Rephidim. And Rephidim literally means desert place. And deserts lack a lot of commodities. One life-giving one is water. God brought them there, and after traveling, they were very thirsty. And in verse two, we see the phrase, they quarreled with Moses. Ultimately, they were quarreling with God. Quarreling is not just a little back and forth. What it means in this context is that Israel is cataloging a list of wrongs that God has done to them, and this is a legal term where they are stacking their chips against God and bringing God to trial. Israel is forming a full-on lawsuit against Moses and God. And Moses tells us in verse two that this lawsuit is testing God. It's testing God. If you've been with us as we've been exploring the book of Exodus, right here, there becomes a sinful, ironic twist in the relationship between Israel and Israel. In God. Up until now, God has been testing Israel. He's been testing them to develop faith in them. Israel at one time stood firm against Egypt at the Red Sea. But now look what's happening. Now they're standing firm against God, showing weak faith by putting God to the test. They are biting the hand that's been feeding and caring for them the whole time. And like sin, when it goes unchecked by God, by his Holy Spirit, sin gets worse. Sin always gets worse. Their testing moved on to a full-blown trial. Israel's lawsuit starts in verse three. Look at the text, it says, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Now, in most of your English versions, it will have a plural, to kill us, to kill my children, to kill our, our, our. In the Hebrew, it's actually a singular phrase. So there's a group component, but then they bring it down to a very specific phrase. They're saying, are you trying to kill me, my children, my livestock? You can hear that toddler's tantrum crying out in the voice of Israel, me, my, mine, if you've 
had kids or you've been around kids, try taking or trying to share one of their favorite toys. Kids do not like that at all. Let's look at this lawsuit, though. Look at these accusations. They accuse God of trying to kill them, kill their children and their livestock, and, but all these are false accusations. They're rewriting their own history. Notice what God did with Israel when the taskmasters were told to beat Israel and to kill them if they weren't producing their quota of bricks. God saves those people. Whenever the, he, uh, the Egyptian midwives and the Hebrew midwives were given direction to kill the, the children of Israel, God saved those children. When the plagues came and it wiped out the Egyptian livestock, Israel's livestock was spared. And not only was their livestock spared, but when they were brought out of Egypt, they were blessed with more material goods, with more livestock. But like every good infomercial, there's more, right? Can you hear Billy Baldwin, the ShamWow guy? The peak of Israel's lawsuit culminates at the end of verse seven. The end of verse seven, it said, they, they cry out, Moses is saying, here's what they said to me. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this phrase, among us, is deep. It's a painful, horrible shot at God. This phrase, among us, uh, basically means something a part of your body that's vital for you to survive, like your heart or your brain or your organs, Israel is saying, is God even among us? Like, is he with us? What's happening is Israel's sin is bringing them near full-blown agnosticism. Well, I, if there is a God, I certainly can't know him. If there is a God, he certainly doesn't care about me. A famous Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, says this about Israel. He says, Israel gained by education. The Lord was not going to lead a mob of slaves into Canaan to go and behave like slaves there. They had to be tutored. The wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university and he taught and trained them and they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. There is no university for a Christian like that of trial we see this same trial following God's character all the way into the New Testament in Matthew 4. As Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to Jesus to lure him to test God, but Jesus obeyed perfectly. And Jesus responded to Satan, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, and he says, you do not put the Lord your God to test like they did back in this very text in Exodus 17. He said, this is not what you do to God. You do not put God to the test. Not only does this same testing happen with Jesus in the New Testament, but like God being on trial here with Israel, having committed no crime, Jesus was also tried. Even though he had committed no crime, he was completely innocent. I wish these trials ended with the closing of the Bible, but y'all were no different. When life gets painful, 
when we go through seasons of intense suffering, it's, it's very common for us to fall into grumbling and raging and bringing a lawsuit against God. You know, for some of us, we could take one or two punches in the mouth. We can take a couple of hard days here and there, but what happened when those days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and the months, years? And the common theme of your life is suffering and pain. It's very easy to come to days where you're thinking, God, where are you? I've been diagnosed with this horrible disease. Where are you, God? Do you care about me? When are you gonna let up on the suffering? God, my spouse is cheating on me. I've been married for all these years. I've come to realize I don't even know the person that I've married. God, where are you? God, I've lost my job. After years of faithful work, where are you? How am I going to pay the bills? God, do you care about me? But it's in those moments where we're raging against God and bringing our lawsuits to God where we're able to be reminded of the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished for us sinful trial attorneys. Jesus knows our suffering intimately. He knows that and he promises that for those who have faith in him that he will give his spirit who's called the great comforter to be with us and empower us to trust God in the middle of our painful spiritual wilderness education. You see, Jesus not only suffered like us, but he paid the sins of all of those lawsuits and all of that rage against God. So in those times where you feel like God doesn't have your best interest at heart, when you have been suffering and suffering and suffering, and you feel like God's not even there, we have the cross that we can look back to where God reminds us over and over that I'm with you that I know what you're going through, that I love you more than you will ever know. So what does this trial tell us? This trial tells and teaches us about the sinfulness of humanity, but it also teaches us about the selflessness of God. And we see God's selflessness in verses five through six. It's here where God has heard Israel's lawsuit. He's heard their cries. Moses says that they're ready to uh, bring about capital punishment. Their minds are made up. They're ready to kill Moses. And God says this to him. He says, go before the people. And that phrase in the Hebrew means literally go before their eyes. And he says, take some elders with you. And like good Presbyterians, they bring their elders, right? It's a joke. It's a Presbyterian church, all right? And he says, take the staff that you struck the Nile with and go. God says that I will, sh I will stand before you there on the rock and you will hit it. Water will come out and the people will drink. Now, statistics show that at this point in a sermon or any public speaking endeavor, this is where people start checking out and they start thinking about going to the French pantry and having brunch. At this point, I need you to put on your thinking caps. I need you to buckle up and stay with me for the next five to seven minutes. 
ideally for the rest of the sermon, but right here, this is where uh, the rubber meets the road, okay? This is where we see deep significance that goes all the way into the New Testament. First, notice here that God commands Moses to grab the staff that he struck the Nile with. This staff was a rod of God's judgment, okay? This staff was used to strike the Nile, and the Nile turned from life-giving water into blood. So when God's instructing Moses to grab this staff, the people, and Moses was probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, they are in for it now. Now, this rod of judgment was brought into the sight of all the people, and it was to strike the rock at Horeb. Now, this is important for us to get. Horeb was where God first revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush after he heard the people's cries. And there at the burning bush, God hears their cries and he promises to bring the relief. And this is here where God is appearing again, having heard his people's cries, having heard the lawsuit, and he's going to bring relief again. Secondly, At this rock is where God's presence is manifested. Moses is to take the staff of judgment where God's presence is manifested and at God's instruction, strike the rock so that water will flow. Now, this is no little pebble. This is no piece of gravel that you find in your driveway. This was a massive boulder. And the water that came from this rock was not like that of a water fountain. It was not a lazy river, but this was a gushing, overwhelming current of water that would have sustained millions of people and their livestock. This was a raging flood. Now, if you're with me, let's put all of those pieces together. Let's put all the blocks together. In this scene, you have Israel putting God on trial, lobbying serious false accusations and rage against God. Their sinful response deserved God's judgment to fall on them, but how does God respond? God doesn't defend himself, but God gives himself in the person of Jesus. And if you're thinking, going, huh, Jesus? Jesus was there at this rock. Listen to what the New Testament tells us about this scene in 1 Corinthians 10. Here the apostle Paul writes this. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual rock. Here it is. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Our text, what we're seeing here is a beautiful picture of the work that Jesus would do on the cross centuries before he would come in human form. At this rock in Exodus 17, Jesus takes the judgment and the punishment of his people on himself and in turn pours out life-sustaining water and nourishment for everyone to drink to their fill. This water is an outpouring symbol of God's abundant mercy and care and grace and love. This water in the middle of this desert was a miraculous sign that God says, I'm with you and I love you. 
and I will sustain you. This is the gospel, the good news of God's grace right here in the second book of the Bible. And notice too, this scene is happening well before God even gives the 10 commandments. So what is God teaching his people? God saves by grace and grace alone, period. God saves by his grace and grace alone. God's goodness and grace, his long suffering, his patience is intended to capture our sinful hearts and to work into us trust and love and to grow us into obeying him out of hearts of love. God is teaching that he is a God of life-giving, abundant mercy, whose love is more uh, overwhelming than we could even fathom or even begin to exhaust. Nancy Spielberg writes a prayer. It reminds me of this. She says, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Is this where you are this morning? Are some of you in this spot right now? Are you wandering across what feels like a spiritual desert where you're longing to have your thirst quenched? You might be parched from years of anger at God. You may have had a horrible experience in life or maybe in the church where you've been lashing out at God for years. You may have gone through seasons and years of suffering where you just can't imagine God having your best interest in mind. When you find yourself there, take a lesson from Israel and turn to God today and drink freely from his well of grace and mercy. His grace his love and his mercy can quench even the thirstiest of souls. And there's nothing you have done and nothing you can do or will do that God can't redeem, that God can't cover, that God can't pay for. And there's no fight that you're ever going to experience that God hasn't already been through, overcome, and redeemed. Trust him today. And for my skeptics here, for those who are exploring Christianity, it's very fair to ask at this point, why though? Why would I trust him? You can trust God today because this same story of God's love and this outpouring of water in this desert was culminated in the person and work of Jesus at the cross. Centuries later, Jesus would be put on trial although he had done nothing wrong, although he had only brought blessing and freedom and healing to the sick and the lame and the diseased. Jesus would hear the curses of the people. He would experience the rage and the, and the accusations lobbied against him. But just like he did here at the rock in Horeb. 
At the Mount of Calvary, he didn't defend himself either, but he gave himself and he offered himself up and he took on himself the wrath of God in the place of God's people. We get details of this in John chapter 19. In verse 28, Jesus is on the cross suffocating. And he says this, I thirst. Now, after what Jesus had gone through, yes, he was very thirsty, but also there is a bigger thirst here. What Jesus is doing is drinking the cup of God's wrath. He is experiencing on the cross in the space and time that we can fathom, on the cross, he's experiencing the barrenness of all eternity of spending that time without God's grace at all. He's experiencing the fullness of what eternity feels like, not knowing the goodness and grace and common love of God. Not only was he there experiencing thirst, so that those who would trust in him would not have to experience that thirst. But Jesus was absorbing all of God's wrath for our sins so that we would never experience God's wrath, so that we would never experience the pain of what it feels like to spend eternity without God's goodness. Jesus did all that for us. We were the people lobbying those accusations. We are the people who were spitting and abandoning Jesus on the cross. He did that for us. So why should you trust Jesus? It's because he's willing to do that for you. He lovingly did that for you. In 1938, David Braun was telling a story about he was about how he was in a Russian prison that was massively overcrowded. There was over 200 men crammed into this small jail cell. And David was sharing how uh, during this time there was a Russian minister who was thrown into prison for being a Christian. During this time, he noted that this Russian minister had a countenance and a difference about him. He wasn't as gloomy, he wasn't as scroogey as the other people, he wasn't as grumpy and uh, just mad at life like the other prisoners. He had a countenance about him. And because he had this lighthearted countenance, the other prisoners couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him. The prisoners uh, always targeted him with abuse and then uh, they found out that he was a Christian minister on top of this and two inmates in particular just really uh, laid into him. They would constantly harass from sunup to sundown, pick prod. They would say blasphemous things about God and constantly taunt and harass this minister. Well, one day David was writing that he got a care package in from his wife and in this package, there was some bread. And he noticed that the minister was looking at this uh, loaf of bread and he could see he was hungry. So David tears off a hunk of the bread and gives it to the minister and seeing this sign of weakness, the guys who'd been harassing the minister started laying it on real thick. And the minister, not defending himself, tears the bread into two pieces and gives it to these inmates who've been harassing him. David looks at him, he's like, what are you doing? Why would you give this to these men? They're harassing you. You're clearly hungry. You're an old man. Like, you need this help. Listen to his response. He says, the minister replied, they need it more than I. Soon I will go home to my Lord. 
Do not be angry with me. And David shared that not too long after this scene, this minister died, but the lives of these two inmates in particular were changed forever. No longer did they harass other prisoners. No longer when Christians came into their jail cell did they harass them. This minister knew that they needed that life-sustaining grace more than he did. And even greater is the work of Jesus who greater than this minister came and gave his life for us because he knows that we needed it more than he did. Before taking his last breath on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Meaning the work to earn God's love. Meaning the payment for all sins, for all those who would trust in Jesus has been completely fulfilled. But interestingly, at the foot of the cross, there was a Roman guard who was to ensure that Jesus didn't get off of that cross alive. To make sure that Jesus was extra dead, that guard took his spear and stabbed Jesus into, the side, into his side. And John's gospel tells us that what flowed out of this uh, pierced point was blood and water. And this is no throwaway detail. Like the same rock at Horeb, where Jesus was manifesting his presence, where he was struck and poured out this life-giving water, Jesus again at Calvary goes up on a hill, is struck again, and he pours out life-giving water and mercy and forgiveness for all those who would trust in him. So the question is, has your thirst been quenched by Jesus? If it hasn't, let me ask you to not leave this room until you allow him to quench that thirst. You do that by asking him to save you, to change your heart, to give you faith, to help to trust and to love him. And he's faithful. He will accomplish that. And like Israel, we can't earn God's love. We can't earn God's forgiveness, nor do we even deserve it. But Jesus came to give life and to give life abundantly. And when you hit those seasons, not if, but when you hit those seasons of deep pain, deep suffering, where every morning you wake up with the same problem laying on your shoulders, where in those moments you feel like saying, God, are you there? God, do you have my best interest at heart? You can look back to the cross and remind yourself of the sinless Savior who died and rose again to give you everything you need to make it through that and he promises to do that over and over and over again. Life-sustaining grace. Let's pray. Father, your flood of mercy for sinners like us is so incredible. It's outside of our ability to fully comprehend how much you love us, that you would leave eternity and enter into time and space and would come and 
in a lowly state, give your life, a life that started in discomfort in a manger and ended in discomfort at a cross. Your whole life, you gave and gave and gave for sinners like us, Father. Lord, our souls are thirsty. We need you. Help us to respond to you and your word in faith and trust and love. Glorify yourself uh, in us, Jesus. Change us and make us new. Help us to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.